let's just pray for Kevin as he brings God's word to us this morning. Father, we do thank you for our brother Kevin and, and for his wisdom. And we pray that as he speaks to us again this morning, you would grant him great freedom, Lord, that he would be able to just be himself and that he would open up your word and speak into our hearts and minds, Lord, in a way that we don't forget. So we pray now, Lord, that as he blesses us, you will fill him with your spirit and anoint him for your good purposes in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. I sometimes ponder on that um, proverb, better a live dog than a dead lion. And uh, often where I've gone to preach, uh, I felt that I've stood in a succession of people that I considered to be great ministers and preachers. Uh, and I often feel like the live dog at the end, that the dead lions were before me and almost have no right to share in the pulpit that they've stood in. And sometimes I feel like that here. But we thank God for the succession he puts us in and for the gifts he gives. Ah, excuse me. <laughs> Let's turn to uh, the book of Colossians and we'll read the next uh, excerpt uh, from chapter 1. Perhaps it would help us to understand the development of an epistle. Um, they are relatively stylized. Um, when you wrote a letter, an epistle in those days, you had certain things in mind, uh, and it starts with the greetings to the people you know. That's what we did yesterday, and a brief outline of what you're going to be talking about. That's the beginning of the epistle. And then you go into the main teaching. And that's what we're jumping into today, the teaching section of the epistle. And, and that goes over the next two chapters. And then you usually have a link word, therefore. Uh, and the result of the teaching is how you should live. That's why doctrine must always lead to lifestyle. And in this particular epistle, holiness is the outcome of what we believe. If your teaching does not lead you to live a life of holiness, there's something wrong with your teaching. There's the problem. And then an epistle finishes with the greetings uh, to the people that uh, were known in the area and the final salutations, and that'll be on Friday morning. Have you ever had somebody begin to talk to you about their faith? And they're ever so excited about it and partway through the conversation, you think, well, that's not right. It's very hard to cut into them and, and tell them, I, I, I don't think you've got that quite right. Because they are waxing eloquent about it. That, of course, is what was happening in Colossians, in Colossae. People had come along, they'd begun to say that the Jewish rituals were necessary. Indeed, we're going to see that in chapter 3. 
um, that ritualism and following the Jewish way of life was being impressed upon them, right down to uh, keeping certain days of the week and fasting at certain times. Why? Because they were teaching that Jesus wasn't enough. It had to be Christ plus. We said this yesterday. The specific things here was Christ plus angels, Christ plus knowledge, Christ plus ascetism. That means discipline. Um, those are the things that we're going to look at perhaps tomorrow. But what Paul wants to tell us today is about the supremacy of Christ. And so if you have the book, you'll be able to see the uh, outline that I'm following um, you know, right at the beginning. Please do take a copy. There's some left on there. If you haven't got one, there's no charge. Just take a copy uh, of the outlines uh, so we're looking at the supremacy of Christ, his supreme person, his supreme status, his supreme mission, and his, and his supreme purpose. His supreme person is that he is the image of the invisible God. His supreme status is that he's the firstborn over all creation. His supreme mission was to reconcile, and his supreme purpose to present us holy before He's the Father without any blemish. Won't that be a day? Not a blemish when we come into his presence. I remember picking up a hitchhiker once. I used to work for a firm called Storm Guard Sills in Macclesfield. I was working for them when I first came to the conferences here. And uh, the hitchhiker got in and his turned out to be a Catholic and I was happy to talk to him. But he turned to me and he said, you know, the thing that you evangelical Christians don't understand is why we pray to Mary. This is an instance of things that didn't seem quite right. He said, if you knew somebody very important, like a, 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 a prince, uh, or, 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 you know, and you had no access to them because they were so important, you could go to their mum. And you could ask their mum to intercede on your behalf. That was why we pray to Mary. Does that sound right to you? No, of course not, because we can go to the King of Kings, this supreme person, this Jesus. It says of him in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. I wonder what most people's image of Jesus is. For many, it would be simply the babe in the manger. Uh, and that would be at most. For some, they would go on to see the miracle work of the walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000, and then thinking, well, did that even really happen? It sounds most implausible. But here we see is the image of the invisible God. <clears throat> An image has got two functions. Firstly, it de depicts, and then it also discloses. So when you see an image, you should have a deeper insight into the one uh, that it is depicting. You should have a, a deeper understanding of the one that is portrayed before you. And the strange thing is, isn't it, that in the Old Testament, images were forbidden. You weren't to make an image of God. You know the chapter, Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a calf image or 
any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water of the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God what was the problem with images uh, and you, I don't know if you've noticed images creeping back into the church today many people have icons um, and they will put an icon in the corner of their room and they'll put a couple of candles around it and a cross in the corner and then they will go and sit down and they will worship God in front of their icon which is projecting an image that has been painted prayerfully and, 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 and with love and dedication what's wrong with that? whenever you depict one image of God you're missing out so much more if you depict his strength, you haven't depicted his meekness and humi humility. If you depict his love, you haven't depicted his justice. Any depiction of God that we make demeans God. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why we have the scripture. Because if we know the scripture and we are filled with the spirit and every uh, believer has the spirit in them I know there are different workings of the spirit but if you're born again you have the spirit within you and, and the Holy Spirit is the one that brings the depiction that we need of Jesus into our mind the depiction that we need of God at that particular time so setting up a static picture of God it won't do we need an active picture of God depicted by the Holy Spirit you see the problem with depicting God is God's invisible. How would you paint a picture of the invisible? God did. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? You go to Jesus. When I followed Keith in Banks, um, not many months after I arrived, a lady knocked on the door. I didn't know her. She was dressed in a nurse's uniform. She said, uh, I'm the um, cancer nurse. Um, and there's a lady in the village. She says, she used to be a Methodist. You're the Methodist minister. Would you come and visit her? Of course. Give me her address. Give me her details. And I went round as soon as I could. The nurse didn't take me around. She just told me where she was. And, and this lady was dying, but she was still able to talk. She'd asked for the minister. And she was very concerned. She was concerned about dying. She had no peace. She used to be a, a Methodist, but she'd gone away from the church many years ago. But she called for the minister. I told her God loved her. She said, well, what's God like? I, I don't understand. I don't know what God is like. And into my mind simply came the words, God is exactly like Jesus. And you know the fruit machines, cherry, cherry, cherry. And, and you could just see the thing going in her mind, ping, ping, ping. Ah, I get it. God is like Jesus. And it just fell into place in her heart and led her in prayer. She received the Lord. She had such joy. Uh, I said, do you know anybody who's a Christian? She said, my sister's a Christian. I said, ring your sister and tell her what you've done. I never saw the lady again. She died soon after. I wasn't even asked to do the funeral. But, but, but in those moments, just that thought that God is like Jesus. That is his supreme person. He goes on to say <laughs> that God was pleased 
to have all his fullness dwell in him. There's nothing missing in Jesus. All the fullness of God was in him in bodily form. There's nothing that wasn't God in him. I, I know it's difficult for us to comprehend. The only way I can think of it is as Jesus as the 200% man. He is a 100% human, born of Mary, flesh of our flesh. But he is 100% God. Not overlaid, but all and at the same time so that God took on flesh. This is supreme. It's why nothing else can compare to Jesus and no other religion on the face of the earth really has any comparison. It's just not the same game. You know, they might score a goal or two. They might even um, appear to have some wisdom. And, and not all religions are wrong in everything they say. That's the problem, isn't it? However, it would be a little bit like Shrewsbury Town facing Chelsea. You know the outcome. <laughs> Before the game has started, it's just the game is being played. And we're in the middle of that game. They may score a goal or two, but Jesus is supreme. That's his supreme person. What about his su supreme status? This is that uh, term, the firstborn over all creation. And it does cause a bit of a problem. The cults pick this up and they say, there, Jesus is created. It says he was born first. <coughs> he is the firstborn. It, incidentally, it doesn't say the firstborn before all creation. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. The first work of God was to create Jesus. So he is a created being. He is less than God, but he is more than man. That's what they creed. It doesn't say the firstborn before. It says the firstborn over. It's not talking about chronology. When the term firstborn is used, it is not always chronological. And this is the problem where we have to put our thinking caps on, where we have to understand it. Sometimes firstborn is chronological, but sometimes it is a title about preeminence. Can you finish this sentence for me? Abraham, Isaac, and... But Jacob wasn't the firstborn. He became preeminent. Esau was the firstborn. He had the right to the inheritance. He had the right to the family farm. He had the right to the name. He had the right to the blessing. But he sold that right. And so Jacob steps in to the breach. And he becomes the one with the firstborn's right. And when it speaks of Jesus as the firstborn, not before, but over creation, it's speaking of him with the right of inheritance. Solomon, he wasn't the firstborn son of David, was he? But what does it say in Psalm 89? I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most excellent of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever. Solomon, again, not the firstborn, but he had the rights of inheritance. He became the firstborn. Firstborn, 
is a title. And when Jesus is called the firstborn, he's been given a title. As I said, not always so. When you hear that he's the firstborn of Mary, yes, it means that he was the firstborn son of Mary. It, it also tells you Mary had other children. Please don't be offended about this, um, but it is so. Matthew 12, 26, get the book, look at the references, Mark 3, 31 and 32, Luke 8, 19 to 21, John 2, 12 and Acts 1, 14. There was other brothers and sisters of Jesus, but they were not uncreated. They were not God in flesh. They were the children of Joseph and Mary. It also calls him in our passage the firstborn from the dead there that would be chronological the first one called out of the grave but not the last one to be called out of the grave <laughs> and as Christ died rested and rose so we will die rest and rise but when his body rested his spirit was preaching to those captive he was alive in the presence of God. And so my belief, people sometimes disagree, but my belief is that we die, we rest, our spirits are alive with Jesus, and we rise again. Romans calls him the firstborn amongst many brothers. What does that mean? It means he's the head of the family. That's what it says in uh, Colossians that we have been reading, uh, that he is the head of the church. And the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So he has the right to rule over his church. He's the head of the family. But if he's the firstborn amongst many brothers, he's also the first one to bear the likeness of God. And if you're his brother and he lives in you, or his sister, you bear the likeness of God too. He's the first one to bear the likeness of God, but not the last one. We don't think of ourselves in those terms, do we, very often? But we bear something of the likeness of God because Christ lives in us. And that's actually what I believe is, is happening through our discipleship, that we are being restored to God's original intention do you remember what God said uh, of Adam and Eve in the famous verses Genesis 1 and 27 I will make man in our image and likeness so God created them in his image and likeness male and female he created we were created in the image of God but then we fell and that image was lost and now we come to faith in Christ and the image is re-imprinted upon our souls. So we, through discipleship, are becoming what we were meant to be. People remade in the image of God. It's a long journey. <laughs> but we're going to get there. We're going to get there without blemish, this passage tells us. It says he's the firstborn amongst many brothers. And you're one of them. The firstborn, uh, the church is called the church of the firstborn. That we, means we belong to him. He is the head of the body, the church. And so we find him 
as supreme, the firstborn over all creation. Uh, and in chapter, in verse 16, uh, we find some prepositions are laid down there. It says, by him all things were made, through him and for him. And that illustrates who he is. He is the originator. Somebody might say, but I thought God made everything. It was made by him. Well, yes, it was. That's right, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet here it says, it was Jesus. Well, there are two things to put in that. That means Jesus is God. By him were all things made. But it not only tells us that Jesus is God. It helps us to understand exactly who our Jesus is. Sorry, I've lost my notes for a minute as I'm left letting my head go somewhere else by him were all things made oh yes it's the relationship between I think uh, designer and builder God conceived the universe he designed it it was in the heart of the Father, but the Son enacted it. He stepped forwards and put into operation the plan that the Father had. Now, who built it? Was it the designer or was it the bricklayer? Jesus got down and dirty. He actually did. Because the world that he had made, he then stepped into and the designer became the builder became the redeemer that's the work that's going on by him all things were created uh, the actual false teaching that's being looked at by the Gnostics not the Jewish element but the Greek element that's trying to influence the church is the idea that creation is evil all matter is evil and if creation is evil we're part of creation we are evil two things come from that one is it doesn't matter what you do with your body because it's evil <coughs> and so what you're trying to do is get liberated from your body and that can sin as much as you like because it is bound to do evil what you need is a pure spirit inside you're trying to liberate your spirit so it separates the two that's never the christian teaching doctrine leads to holiness but the other thing is if this creation is evil then god can have nothing to do with it god can't become a man he can't take on flesh because flesh is evil and so the wrong teaching brings down who jesus is you, you see what i'm saying it makes him less. And they are arguing, well, God can't possibly become a man, so therefore he sent out between us and him angels and demons, they call them emanations, so that we can get in touch with those. 
Paul rather blasts that out of the water. He says, by him were all things created, thrones and authorities, rulers and powers. He's talking about the angels and demons. It's just a throwaway line. By the way, he made them as well. Our Jesus. He also made the angels. That is his supreme status. Firstborn over all creation. What about his mission? Verse 19 and 20. It's reconciliation. God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Today, sadly, we've got to even ask the question, why do we need reconciling? Why do we need reconciling to God? Why can't God take us as we are? And, and we do make that um, offer in church, don't we? Come as you are. Well, there's only a partial truth in that. You can come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. <laughs> we have to come as we are in repentance. We have to come in humility. It seems to me that if God humbled himself to walk amongst man, and the Bible says he did, then it is absolutely impossible to come to God unless you will walk in humility. Christ wore the cloak of humility. So unless we will put on the same clothes as him, we won't even be walking alongside him. We'll be somewhere else. But his mission was to reconcile us. And it's lovely because it says God was pleased. I don't know quite what that means. But through all of eternity, he's sitting on the throne of heaven. And the thought of coming amongst us to redeem us, it pleases him. It gives joy to his heart. The end game of God, the vision that he has. We said yesterday that we have to be held by a vision, that our vision is a vision of heaven. Well, the end game of God, the vision that holds him, the thing that pleases him the most, is that we're going to be in his presence. There will be a bride for the groom. There will be a redemption, a reconciliation, a reuniting, a reprinting of the image of God upon man. And it will be eternal. Because the holiness that dwells in God will dwell in us. We won't even want to be unholy. In fact, the thought of it will not even enter our mind, but it would be disgusting. That, that's one of the interesting things about the cross, isn't it? With Jesus, he didn't just bear our sin. We know he did that. But it says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. It's that first bit. He knew no sin. He'd never been tempted by it. Not for a millisecond. He didn't desire sin. He didn't enjoy sin. He didn't savour sin. He wasn't enticed by sin. He was disgusted by sin. It turned his inside. 
He hated it with a vengeance, with the holiness of God. Sin was repulsive to not the sinner. You understand? But the idea that he then became sin. He knew no sin. And it never entered his mind for a moment. Suddenly, as all the filth and ugliness of sin poured in upon his consciousness. consciousness. How repulsive must that have been to Judas? How horrible. We can't imagine it because we're tempted by it. You know, we sin because we quite like to. And we play with the thought until eventually the thought gives in and we, uh, and we do the thing. And then the Holy Spirit convicts us and we feel small and foolish. Jesus was never tempted. He didn't want to sin, but he actually took sin onto himself. And this is what it says here, that we are redeemed by his blood. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross. It describes why we need reconciling. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God, enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, and there's that two-pronged thing going on there. There is an internal sin. Our minds are not set on God. Our hearts are not set on God. We are enemies in our minds. But the result of having an enemy mind is that we have enemy actions. We have evil behaviour. Of course, we don't see ourselves as enemies, do we? The world doesn't see itself as an enemy of God. You know, we're nice people. I remember Linda when she first started coming to um, uh, the Methodist Church at uh, Little Sutton where Keith was minister and I was local preacher. And um, I was doing some painting at one time and Linda walked past and I'm up a ladder and she's down there. She said, Kevin, she said, I don't get all this about sin. She said, you're always talking about sin. I'm not a sinner, I'm a nice person. You know, uh, and she, she got it in the end. But I'd say, Linda, have you ever told a lie? You know, up a ladder painting a notice board. You know, you know Linda, have you ever swore? You know, and, and finally came down to the thing that sins aren't just big things. It, it's part of who we are. Enemies in our minds. And that's why we act in such ways. I like what Max Lucado, 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 Lucado one of them it, it was him he said about man's greatest need if our greatest need had been information God would have sent an educator if our greatest need had been technology God would have sent a scientist if our greatest need had been money God would have sent an economist but since our greatest need was forgiveness God sent a saviour we needed reconciled and reconciliation's hard work. In South Africa, they had to set up the Commission for Reconciliation so that all the stories were heard and they had to be willing to let the discrimination go. Reconciliation was hard work. You ask the Palestinians and the Jews if reconciliation is hard work. There is no mediator. There was no one to stand in between and bring that gap together. Reconciliation is hard work. 
what does it say Jesus he made peace by his blood on the cross peace through his blood he brought the warring side together and Paul uses strong words of us we were alienated there was accusations against us we were blemished we were enemies in our minds and in our actions and then verse 22 he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death our reconciliation caused the death of Jesus and that word accusation is perhaps important to understand because Accusation is not brought by God in one sense. Accusation comes from the laws. God has set up the laws. They stand independent. The judiciary is meant to be independent, isn't it? And they stand as our accuser. And the laws of God accuse us. What's it say in chapter 3? We're going on to it tomorrow. It tells us that he took the laws that stood opposed to us that accused us and he nailed them to the cross that's what's going on at the cross the accusation falls on him and we are forgiven and, and not just we're forgiven if you look at verse 22 in the living bible it isn't one i quote often but i you know this is what it says there it says, Christ has brought you into the very presence of God and you're standing before him with nothing left against you. Nothing left that he could even chide you for. So Christ not only takes the accusations, he then introduces us to God. He says, come on, come and see the Father. You are welcome in his presence. And because of what Christ has done, we are welcome. That's why it's Christ in us in hope of glory. Because it's all about what he has accomplished that makes us welcome, that makes him introduce us. What will it be like on that day when we're actually introduced to the Father? We don't even know what the Father's like other than Jesus. We have no idea. But it says we will enter with great joy. Look at Jude who is able to present you before his presence with great joy. Oh! Yes! You're not going in repentant. You repent now so as you go in with joy then. Isn't that cool? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, that was his supreme mission, to present us faultless and without blemish. Oh, wow. His last one, his supreme purpose, holiness. Verse 22 and 23, to present you holy without blemish, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith. <laughs> we understand, do we not, that there are three parts to our salvation. We were saved by Christ. We are being saved daily by Christ as we grow. It is an ongoing process. doesn't mean you weren't saved then. You know, but it, it is uh, a present continuous action, something that happened in the past that has implications today. And, and we will be saved. In other words, we were saved from the pollution of sin. It no longer needs to affect our lives. In the moment we believe the pollution, 
was removed and we were counted as clean for Christ's sake. We are being saved from the power of sin. Let sin no longer reign in your mortal bodies, but one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. We're going into heaven completely clean and holy. And that's why holiness is important to God. I guess the Colossians were in danger of falling away. You know, he is telling them that they must continue. He says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm. I think it's true to say, test it out, you do not pay for your salvation, but you do pay for your discipleship. That's the continuing, if you continue in your faith. Christ pays your salvation, you pay your discipleship. You have to walk with God. And those are the uh, words that are used, <laughs> that we have peace, that we can come without blemish, that we may walk with him. And it's meant to be a walk of holiness. How do we do that? Well, it's actually about where your mind is fixed. You would have to go over to chapter 3 before you get there, what it tells us there, that we are to seek those things which are above. And where your mind is fixed will affect how you walk today. A Christian is a person with a changed mind and with a changed life. We think differently. We are meant to be counter-cultural. It's okay not to do what the world is doing. In fact, if you're doing what the world is doing, it's probably not okay. We're meant to be counter-cultural. What does it say in Romans 12 and 2? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is our Jesus. He is supreme over all creation, the image of the invisible God. His status, he is the firstborn over all creation, the one with the right of inheritance by him, through him and for him, are all things. Not only is he a supreme person, he has a supreme mission. His mission to reconcile us in his blood. And finally, his supreme purpose to present us faultless before the Father. And that with great joy. Oh, just to close. If Christ is in you, the hope of glory, if he is in you, and he is the son that God loves, that was verse 13, you've been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. So if Christ is in you and he is the son God loves, how does God feel about you? Absolutely. Amen.